When our kids were young, I walked out into the living room one evening after they'd been put to bed, and I found my wife Karen sitting alone there in a chair looking down at the floor. And as I walked in the room, she said, I don't know what's wrong. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I don't, I just don't feel like a very good Christian. And I said, well, really, what, what's making you feel that way? She said, well, you know, with the kids running around all day, I'm exhausted by the time I get to bedtime and I just fall asleep. I have no energy left to read the Bible or pray. And in the mornings, they're up early, and they're at me right away, and so nothing happens there. And in the middle of the day, they're no longer napping at the same time. I haven't had a quiet time in weeks. I just don't feel like a very good Christian. Now, if I were to survey you this morning and say, how are you feeling about yourself as a Christian, how would you respond? Would you say, actually, I feel great. I feel great right now. Or would you pull back a little bit and say, good, or fair? Or would you, as I find so many believers would, they would say, well, actually, I don't feel like a very good Christian. What is causing that for you? Maybe you're like my wife, and you're like, it's, it's that quiet time thing. I just... Maybe it's evangelism. You're like, I don't share my faith. I haven't shared my faith in years. I don't even like to share my faith. I feel so awkward. Maybe it's you're like me, and maybe it's because you have had doubts. Last, last year, I went through a season of doubts. I'm not sure exactly what caused it, but it was the oddest thing. I could be here on Sunday preaching with such clarity and conviction and assurance of the truth, and on a Tuesday morning, I'd be like, yeah, but how do you know? Thankfully, my mentor kind of walked me through that season, but there were many days in there where because of those doubts, I thought, wow, I don't feel like a very good Christian. What is it for you? Now, I have discovered over the years that this is a malady that does not really afflict the lukewarm believer. This is not for your laissez-faire Christian. This is for your earnest person. This is for your sincere person. This is for the committed person. This is for the person who goes to small groups. This is for the person who writes the check to the missionaries. This is for the person who memorizes scripture. They are the ones most acutely feeling this and most likely to feel it and say, I don't feel like a very good Christian. In fact, I have come to believe it is one of the more common maladies of the Christian life. And yet it's not very often talked about. But if it is let go, if it is left untreated, here's what starts to happen. That, you, 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 under that kind of life thinking, you sag with, and you, you develop this low-level anger, and, and even then, ultimately, a resentment at all the expectations that are being placed on you to live the Christian life. You're like, oh man, I gotta be a good steward of my body, so I gotta get up early and work out. I gotta be a good steward of my mind, so I gotta be reading my Bible. I gotta be a good steward of my spirit, and I gotta be praying. And it pulls you away from God. Is there a cure? This morning, I wanna set forth to you that I believe Christianity is much better than most people think it is. 
And I would go so far as to say, I think it's much better than most Christians think it is. It is much better than most Christians experience on a regular basis because there's a cure for I don't feel like a very good Christian. God has made a way. And I want to look at that with you this morning from the book of Romans. Let's do it together. We've been studying Romans this summer, and in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul sets out this amazing way in which God is going to rescue broken people in a broken world and bring about a restoration through his son. And now, he, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he needs to pause long enough to answer a question that his listeners are wondering, and it's this. Hey, Paul, what about God's chosen people? If this was God's plan from the beginning, if God's got this amazing plan to restore people in this broken world, then why are so few of his chosen people in on it? Why is it that these people who've had 1,800 years of cultural preparation for a Messiah, everything's been pointing the way. They have the covenant, they have Abraham, they have the promises, they have the glory, they have the temple. They should be, of all people, the most bought into this, and yet here in this church in Rome that you're writing this letter to, very few Jewish people. They're staying away in droves, actually, and the people who are streaming in to the church are all these pagan Gentiles who honestly didn't care that much about the true and living God. Why is that, Paul? Did something go wrong with God's plan? And Paul, in addressing that question, which was so pressing for them in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he addresses a question that's pressing for us, which is, how do you cure, I don't feel like a very good Christian? Let's look at it together. We'll start at chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart, my prayer to God, is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul himself is from the Jewish nation and he loves them. He says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God. Look, these people know the true God. They know the living God, and and they're not, like, laid back about it. They're enthusiastic. They're all in. So what's going wrong? It is misdirected zeal. Verse 3, they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. There's two ways of trying to get right with God and they've made their choice. When I was 16 and desperately wanting my driver's license, I went and took the driving test in the state of Maryland where you go with an instructor out onto the range and they're marking your ability to do turns and that. And too bad for me that if you got 16 points off, you failed, and parallel parking alone was 16 points. So it didn't take long for the instructor to figure out I had no clue how to parallel park. Maybe it was right when I hit the cone. But anyway, I came home and sank into a sinkhole of existential despair, knowing I would never get my license, and my life was over. And my parents, in an attempt to rescue me from that, they they signed me up for one lesson. They enrolled me in the Frank Leisure Driving School, Incorporated. And so we drove there one day, and my mom went inside and, and paid and I was in the car, and bounds out to the car, this squat, stocky guy with a crew cut. I don't know whether he'd been in the Marines, but he might as well have been. Frank Leisure. And he, dr- he gets in the car. He doesn't even say hi. He just gives me a bone-crushing handshake. And then this is the first words out of his mouth. He says, all right, there's two ways to park a car, my way and the wrong way. 
And what Paul is telling us here, friends, is there's two ways to get right with God. God's way and the wrong way. It is so important that we understand the, the, the distinction, the chasm between those two ways, that we don't miss it at all, that we get so clear on it, and so I want to set that forth for you. Now, imagine, if you would, that we took that big black curtain that's hanging back there, and we turned it 90 degrees and ran it this way, kind of down the center of this chancel stage. Over here on this side, Paul's saying, there's God's way of getting right with himself. And over here, on the other side of this impenetrable curtain that separates the two is our way. The way that seems preferred by those who are so zealous for God. Over here, he says, it's keeping, uh, trusting in God. Let's look at that, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 30. Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. They ended up on this side of the curtain. How? By faith. It was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. They're over here. And why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law. Do you see there's keeping the law over here? There's trusting in God over there. So let, let's just get really clear on this. Over here is trusting. Over here, trying. This is the achieve method. Over here, this is the believe method. Over here, I'm trusting in Jesus' performance. Over here, I'm trusting in my own. Such a distinction. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 4, because I think this is the, the key text for this passage. The Bible tells us that Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. Now, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to train people and, and to become people who loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and people who loved their neighbor as their self. Nobody was doing very well at that. So God in his mercy sends Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfills the law. This is what it's all been leading toward. This was the whole point of it. But some people are still over here trying to fulfill the law. No, it's been done for you. Jesus just fulfilled it. He's the culmination of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the end of the law. Wow. And so all who believe in him are made right with God. So I can spend the rest of my life trying to obey all of God's commands, all of the religious duties perfectly, or I can trust in Christ who did. Now, this is kind of outside our experience. We don't have a, a, a frequent experience where in, in, in a, a loving trust, in a belief, all of a sudden we take on all the qualities of that other person and they become ours. So let me see if I can explain this. Now, this is a special secret for the men here, but the key to a woman's heart, okay? Actually agree to sit down and watch Pride and Prejudice, okay? And when you do... Um, you will find the Bennett family. And the whole drama of the Bennett family is their financial future is so insecure. And they're all afraid of that. And they have four girls in the family, and in England 200-ish years ago, your only way out of that is to marry somebody with money. So they're all struggling because they need that, but they can't control that. So we follow Elizabeth Bennett in her ups and downs with a certain man named Mr. Darcy. Now, it turns out that Mr. Darcy, despite his social awkwardness initially, is fabulously wealthy. 
He owns this massive, magnificent estate of Pemberley. As they say, he, he's worth at least 10000 a year, you know? And, and he has servants and all these grounds. It's unbelievable. It's like living in a palace. Well, the moment that Elizabeth Bennett joins herself to Mr. Darcy with love and trust, she's immediately fabulously wealthy herself. She is co-owner of Pemberley. She's the mistress of the estate. All of that that's his is now hers. And the moment that you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, all of his righteousness becomes ours. All of the way he fulfills the law becomes ours, even though we're not fulfilling the law. Do you see that our failure to keep the law plus faith in Jesus Christ who did makes us righteous with God? That is a dramatic change in the history of religion. That is a game changer. Why is it we don't take that in? Why is it that we Christians really don't believe that? Now, so there's these two ways. The achieve method of getting right with God and the believe method of getting right with God. And depending on which you choose tells you whether you're going to live a lot of your life not feeling like a very good Christian. So which one are you living in? Can I ask you that honestly? Just think for a moment about that. Now, as you're thinking, can I just point out, before you quickly say, I'm in on the believe method all the way. Verse 3, the believe method loses the class election every year. People consistently love the achieve method. Chapter 10, verse 3, refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. And you say, wait, 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 wait. We, we're evangelicals here. Man, we're the people who, who preach salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ first. We preach it the most. We preach it the best. That's our sweet spot. That's our wheelhouse. We're the ones who came up with the song, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. How can you say that, that, that we don't live in grace? Because here's what I think happens, and you tell me if I'm right. Everybody's great on grace on day one when you come to Jesus Christ, but then the assumption is, oh, day two, now you move over here, and now you need to get after it. You need a daily quiet time. You need to be witnessing. You need to be doing this and giving and da-da-da, and if you don't, you're a loser. You see? We start with the believe method, but oh so quickly we drive ourselves into the achieve method, and we place ourselves under a new law. And Christ is the end of that. We can't live under that. We're not designed to live under that. And every sub-tribe of those who are zealous for God have their own rules. Like, you know, among evangelicals, don't swear. But then among hipster Christians, missional Christians, actually swearing's cool. That's authentic. But, but you better be doing acts of justice. You better be helping free people from human trafficking and digging wells in sub-Saharan Africa, or you're a loser, right? Or if you're a Catholic, then, you know, you better not miss mass, whatever it is. And we put ourselves back here. And I'm like, oh man, do you see, it's not just the believe method on day one of the Christian life, it's believe method on day two and 22 and 222. It's, it's the whole thing, as Tim Keller put it so beautifully, grace is not just the ABCs of faith, grace is the A to Zs of faith. The, the humble where you just threw yourself on Jesus Christ and said, I'm a mess. I need you. I need a savior. That saves you. And it saves you on day one and it saves you every other day after. Why is it that we switch it out and we go, oh, now it's up to me. Now it's based on my performance. God, you've provided the sinless life of your dear son. Oh, that's not enough for me. You know what, how I really want my stock to rise and fall with you? The consistency of my daily quiet times. Have we gone mad? 
We lose the grace that is ours, it's our inheritance, and then we live this life where we don't feel like a very good Christian. The answer to the question, how you feeling about a Christian, yourself as a Christian should be, I am a very good Christian because I have a very good Christ. That's it. I know that I don't live as I should, but I have a very good Christ, and his righteousness is mine. Let's show you how this works out each day. Uh, Let's just say, hypothetically, that I had a tech problem at home that was driving me nuts. And let's just say that I called tech support customer service. And instead of getting help, I got a bureaucratic phone tree that was running me around with an annoying voice message that was saying, have you tried our website at www? Yes, I have. That's my issue. Okay. And so then, finally, I get to a human being who, who says this, because this is the, the substance of their training there in level one tech support. Have you tried to reboot? Yes, I've tried to reboot. I've tried 11 times. And let's just say, hypothetically, that I become a jerk and get angry with the person. And then when I hang up, I look at, my wife's looking at me with that look that's like, and you call yourself a pastor? Okay, now, I don't feel like a very good Christian. And I go into my shame thing, like, what is wrong with me? This person's probably having a terrible day. She'll never come to Jesus now. What am I, you know, all of a sudden, what's going on? All my focus is where? On me, on my performance. I'm living in the achieve method. But if I will just look up and go, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive my anger and impatience. Just make me the person you want me to be. I'll always do that unless you help me. All of a sudden, where's my focus? It's back on Jesus, it's back on God's provision, it's back on his mercy, and all of a sudden, I'm back living and enjoying the life of grace that God wants for you and God wants for me. Now, I think the acid question of this text is, why is it that those of us, it was in the originally in the Jewish community, but now it's so often in the church, who have the most zeal for God, the zeal for the true and living God, the most sincere, the earnest, the committed. Why is it that us, right? That's the kind of church we are. Why is it that we would be so tempted to drift away from the believe method and land here in the achieve method? What's that about? Well, I have a theory, and we'll see, see what you think of it. Here in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is desperately trying to bring down pride among believers that is driven by comparisons. So he's trying to bring down the pride of Jewish Christians who are like, we got the promises, we got Abraham, we got the covenant. We don't really need too much of Jesus because we've got it all. And he's trying to humble them. But then he's trying to humble the Gentiles who are like, hey, we got most of the people in the church. This message is the one that we like, and the Jews aren't even that interested, so we're better. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing down all their pride, and what he's doing is attacking the, the pride of comparisons. And the pride of comparisons is exactly what happens in your spiritual life and mine the moment that we're in the achieved method. Let me illustrate by using an analogy from the gym. I went to the gym one day, and as soon as I walked in, I looked over to my right, and there was a guy, like literally, his workout shirt was straining to stay on his chest. This guy was so buff and hard body. He he had eyes that were rippling. He had tries that were rippling. He had ripples upon his ripples. And and so I lace up my aging New Balance sneakers, and I get out there trying to go around the track, and I'm kind of huffing and puffing my way around. Boom! He goes by me, blows me away, you know, laps me. And then by the time I get back around, he's doing box jumps, and he's just killing the box jumps. The next time he goes, boom, by me on the track, I read the back of his shirt. 
wimps quit. Winners get fit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a wimp, you know. I have the build of a shoelace. If I worked out every day, I'd never be like this guy. But then, a little after that, as I'm still huffing and puffing, a new guy comes into the gym and starts his way around the track, and he's about my age, and he looks completely rumpled. And he's not even in workout clothes, he's walking around the track. So, as I get near him, I speed up and blow him away. See, <laughs> I get a surge of energy. And this is what happens in our Christian lives. We feel either proud because we're doing well right now, or we feel insecure, which is really just pride turned inside out like a sock. We're still self-focused. It's still all about us and our performance. And we justify ourselves by looking at somebody else. And so we're like, hey, I may not be Mother Teresa. I may not be Billy Graham, but at least I'm better than this person over here. This person is really a mess. Right? True? Okay. <laughs> and, and, and that's what we do. I remember a woman who told me with such earnestness, she just volunteered on her own as we were having this conversation. She said, I am a very moral person. And I kind of went, go on, because inside I'm thinking, you're living with this guy that you're with right now. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering how she's framing this up. And she says this, she says, I'm not like so many people, I, I have one guy at a time. You see what she's doing? She's saying, I may not be this, but at least I'm not this, and therefore I'm justified. Here's what, anytime you get into the achieve method, you will live your life in the, in the despair of comparisons. But if you will step across to the believe method, all comparisons are laid low. Everybody is humbled. We're all in the, all of a sudden, this amazing sense of community is created where, you know, it's like, I'm a mess, you're a mess. Hey, welcome, right? Because we all need Jesus so much and we know that it's not about us. It's not about our performance. We just, we're, we're made right by him. Now, what would happen for you, friends? if you were to live more fully into the grace that is yours, that is your birthright, if you were to say, I'm going to anchor myself by God's grace in the believe method, I know that I can never get myself good enough for God in, in all those things. And by the way, Bible study is great, prayer, prayer is great, quiet time is great, missionaries, all that's great. But I'm not doing that with the sense that God loves me more if I do it and less if I don't. All that's gone. What would happen for you? I'll tell you what would happen for you the first thing that would happen is how much less shame you would live in and this residual sense of failure. I see people straining sometimes on Sundays, like, should I come up for Eucharist? You, you know what happened to me Wednesday night. Yes, you should come to Eucharist. Eucharist is for sinners. You're a sinner. You're made righteous by Jesus who invites you to his table. Of course you should come. So you step out of shame and you step into the security of saying, oh, I'm a very good Christian because I have a very good Christ. And, you, and you, you stop setting limits to the mercy of God. Thomas Merton said a brilliant thing. He said, don't ever imagine that just because you're not pleasing to yourself, you're not pleasing to God. You may not, you, you may not be pleasing yourself. You're still pleasing to God. He loves you and his son as you trust in him. So you can move from shame to security. Another thing that will happen for you is you'll move from resentment. That resentment of, I got to do it, I got to do it, I got to stay up, I got to keep the ball spinning. You can't do it. And move into the relief where you just set your heart on Jesus Christ and you're like, wow, it's really true what he said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I don't have to somehow see myself as some wise, noble, and virtuous super Christian. I can just be like a toddler who falls down as much as he walks. And I just put my hand in the hands of Father who loves me, and I live my life like that. What a relief. Some of you, you've had years of this kind of weight on you. You don't have to live there one day longer. And last, as, I, as I've tried to point out, the, this noxious comparisons where we, we compare ourselves to somebody who's awesome and we devalue ourselves and demotivate ourselves or we compare ourselves to somebody who's not as far along as we and all of a sudden we justify ourselves. We get out of that game, that, that community-destroying game and we walk over here into the simple gratitude of the Christian life. Do you know when we get to heaven, we're not going to say, man, I know how I got here, but I'm really surprised you got in. That's not going to happen. Instead, we're all, every one of us, just going to fall on our faces, take the crown off our head and throw it down on the ground at the feet of Jesus and say, not to us, not to us, but to your name alone give glory. That's all you'll want to say. That's all you'll say, and it's so true. Oh, friends, why would you or I live one more day in the achieve method which doesn't succeed? It never has succeeded and it never will. Why would we live under this resentment, this crushing rules and regulations in this sense that I'm not a very good Christian when God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, that we look up to him and live. We trust in him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I want you to do something for me, if you would. Uh, and that is, I want you to just sort of, you can close your eyes if you want, but I want you to think about what is that thing right now that makes you feel like not a very good Christian? And maybe just even kind of tangibly hold out your hands as though that thing were in them, and you can kind of image what that is for you. Okay? Take a moment to do that. And now, if the truth of this gospel word from Romans has come through to you, if it stirred your heart, can you just like turn over your hands and drop that? Can you say, I, I know that can never be enough. I, I'm not interested in that. I let that go. I can't carry the weight of that. And now just kind of open yourself up to the grace of God, that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law, the culmination of the law, the end of the law. As you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you make this truth alive for the people this morning gathered here before you? Would you move them into the joy of the life of grace? Would you sustain them as they daily walk in it? And would in all things you be glorified in Jesus' name.